This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is writer Ellen Bass. Known predominantly as a poet, Ellen's work appears in The New Yorker, The American Poetry Review, as well as The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The New Republic, The Kenyan Review, Plowshares, and The Sun, and has appeared in hundreds of other journals and anthologies. She's a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. She's been awarded fellowships from places like the National Endowment for the Arts and the California Arts Council, and has received the Elliston Book Award for Poetry from the University of Cincinnati, and many other awards, including three Pushcart Prizes. Her newest collection, Indigo, was published by Copper Canyon Press in April 2020. It's a wonder to behold. Welcome, Ellen. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a joy to meet you. In the opener, I referred to you as a writer, but we talk a lot about identity these days. Most of us, some of us at least, are learning the language of who we are and who others are and to be respectful and accurate. And for some reason, I expect a poet to be really good at this. So how do you identify yourself? Being here as a writer, I think of myself as a writer. That's one of my primary identifiers. And I write poetry. I've also written nonfiction. And I'm a teacher. In addition to that, I'm a woman. I'm a lesbian. I've, I'm married. I've lived with my wife for 38 years. I also identify as bisexual, even though I'm in a 38-year monogamous relationship. I think that's an important thing that is very different from when I was younger, and these categories were very rigid, and now Mm -hmm. we see all the fluidity in sexual orientation and gender. I'm a mother of two grown children. I am white. I'm Jewish. I'm old-ish. Uh, I'm going to be 73 this month. (laughs) Old-ish. I I like that. (laughs) All of those things. I mean, I ask, I ask because writers bear such a burden of marketing ourselves these days and when discussing our work. I mean, I'm a memoirist, I'm a nonfiction writer, I'm a feminist, and on we go. But when you get up and speak, when you get up and when you have to represent yourself, when you have to sell yourself to say you're gay, white, multi-platform, contemporary poet is, you know, a mouthful, but accurate. <laughs> and I guess my question is, how much of a lens do you think we need to supply as a poet for someone else to be invited into our work? Do, are, do we have a responsibility to? Ah, none. That's the answer I'm looking for. None. I, none. And also being of this age and having been writing and 
in the writing world for over half a century, I have the uh, fortunate position that I don't really have to sell myself anymore. I, I don't mean I don't have to be out there. Poetry does not go places by itself. I think of it like a child where you have to hold its hand and walk it across the street. You know, if you write a novel, that novel might go out into the world by itself. But but poetry needs you to, um, you know, to give it that hand and and take it out. So So I do have to do that in order to let people know that my poems are there and available for them to read and give them a chance to be introduced to them so that maybe then they will find value in them. Uh, I don't mean to say that, I, I mean, certainly right now, oh my God, June 2020, we know how essentially crucial it is for us to be looking at race and uh, as white people, white privilege, and to be amplifying black voices and voices of people of color. So I don't mean to in any way um, devalue how, that, mm-hmm. that importance. But when I, when I read a poem, most of the time, I don't need to know anything except what is in that poem. And mm-hmm. if the poet's race or gender or sexual orientation or ability or disability or whatever it may be is important to that poem, it will be in the poem in a way Mm -hmm. that communicates to me. And if it's not important, then in that particular poem, it doesn't matter. As I'm talking to you, I'm I'm just looking uh, ahead on my wall, and there's a tiny poem by Langston Hughes, who we know was black and was very publicly actively important um, writing about race and writing about being black. But this little tiny poem is called Island, and I'll just say it to you because it's Mm -hmm. it's a poem that sustained me during many hard times. Island, wave of sorrow, do not drown me now. I see the island still ahead somehow. I see the island and its sands are fair. Wave of sorrow, take me there. Mm. And I, Perfect. during hard times, I've sometimes said that poem to myself over and over through the day. And mm-hmm. I, I often think, you know, there's Langston Hughes. When he wrote that poem, he never imagined that miles and years after he died that there'd be, you know, a, a white lesbian in Santa Cruz, California, holding on to his poem to get her through the day and get her through the night. So poems can <laughs> transcend, you know, whatever Langston Hughes' sorrow was at that moment. I don't need to know what it was, I because right. everything I need is in the poem. So let's invite others. You, you said that we've got to sort of take the poetry out and walk it around to get it out into the world. I would, I would love to ask you to do so with one of your poems. If you would read, please, your title poem from your new book, Indigo, I would be really honored. Oh, I would love to. Thank you. Indigo. 
As I'm walking on Westcliff Drive, a man runs toward me, pushing one of those jogging strollers with shock absorbers so the baby can keep sleeping, which this baby is. I can just get a glimpse of its almost translucent eyelids. The father is young, a jungle of indigo and carnelian tattooed from knuckle to jaw, leafy vines and blossoms, saints and symbols. Thick wooden plugs pierce his lobes, and his sunglasses testify to the radiance haloed around him. I'm so jealous, as I often am. It's a kind of obsession. I want him to have been my child's father. I want to have married a man who wanted to be in a body, who wanted to live in it so much that he marked it up like a book, underlining, highlighting, writing in the margins, I was here, not like my dead ex-husband, who was always fighting against the flesh, who sat for hours on his Zafu chanting Om, and then went out and broke his hand, punching the car. I imagine when this galloping man gets home, he's going to want to have sex with his wife, who slept in late, and then he'll eat barbecued ribs and let the baby teethe on a bone while he drinks a dark beer. I can't stop wishing my daughter had had a father like that. I can't stop wishing I'd had that life. Oh, I know, it's a miracle to have a life, any life at all. It took eight years for my parents to conceive me. First there was the war, and then just waiting. And my mother's bones so narrow, she had to be slit and I airlifted. That anyone is born, each precarious success, from sperm and egg to zygote, embryo, infant, is a wonder. And here I am alive almost 70 years, and nothing has killed me. Not the car I totaled running a stop sign, or the spirochete that screwed into my blood. Not the tree that fell in the forest exactly where I was standing, my best friend shoving me backwards so I fell on my ass as it crashed. I'm alive, and I gave birth to a child. So she didn't get a father who'd sling her onto his shoulder. And so much else she didn't get. I've cried most of my life over that. And now there's everything that we can't talk about. We love, but cannot take too much of each other. Yet she is the one who, when I asked her to kill me, if I no longer had my mind, we were on our way into Ross, shopping for dresses. That's something she likes, and they all look adorable on her. She's the only one who didn't hesitate or refuse or waver or flinch. As we strode across the parking lot, she said, okay, but when's the cutoff? That's what I need to know. <laughs> Beautiful. And you particularly lay bare the, the topic of your parents in this book, how your mother lives yes. within you, how your daughter yes. and you have this unsteady or but but bonded relationships the hands-on caregiving you gave to your father how you love and live with your wife so what are we doing when we graphically and honestly and precisely write like this surely we're not just merely showing our lives to others what what are, what's the process that you no as i tell my is? students no one cares about your life no one cares about you <laughs> 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 
<laughs> no one cares about me. I mean, you know, we're talking together, so now you care about me a little bit, and I care about you a little. But when you're reading the poems, you know, no one thinks, gosh, I wonder what happened to Ellen after that. I wonder how it's going to turn right. out. It's not like that. The The poem, if it is a, is a successful poem, says something to the reader about his or her or their own life or about human lives in general. So I use the material of my life because that's the material I have to work with. Those of us who write from our own lives, which for the most part I do, not every single poem, but for the most part. And so that's the material I'm given. I think of it, and I tell my students, that it's as though I lived in some very remote place. And once a year or a couple times a year, somebody would come by with different household items that were needed and like bolts of cloth. And they only had a certain number of bolts of cloth. Maybe they had 10 bolts of cloth in their little wagon. And so that's the cloth that I would have to work with to make the things that I needed to sew that year. <laughs> and that those are like the elements of my life. You know, those are the things I have to work with. But they're, they're not... Um, I, I'm not sharing them so that you know about me. I'm sharing them because mm -hmm. I, that's what I have to make these poems about... Um, you know, what it is to be a human on this planet at this time. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about process right from sure. scratch in the moment. Yeah. You see something. Mm -hmm. The pork chops in your marvelous poem, Ode to a Pork Chop, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. my new favorite poem. And oh. you do what? Are you carrying a notebook, an index card? Are you talking into your phone? What What is your mode of notation in the moment as you see, feel, hear, smell, taste something that you want to note? Well, I do try and carry, if not a notebook, at least a piece of paper and some kind of writing implement. And of course, now that we carry our phones around, that's very handy because I can jot down a few lines or a few words or notes to myself because I have found that if I don't jot those down, I am going to lose them. And sometimes even the most simple five or six words, if I don't write it down three or four hours or a day from then, I don't remember the order and I liked it the mm -hmm. way I thought it up. So it's that is important and I do take little notes. But sometimes I don't write things down and I just kind of wait. This, this particular poem, Ode to the Pork Chop, was... <laughs> <laughs> we we are grappling, as many people are, with the way animals are raised, those of us who are not mm -hmm. vegetarian or vegan. And so uh, some friends of ours raised this pig that we were able to get some uh, meat from. And so uh, mm -hmm. when I was cooking this pork chop, and I found this, I, I've also written about chickens that, that we slaughtered and uh I found that my relationship to meat that I knew where it came from and that I had a part in its death um, is very different than my relationship to meat that I buy in the store. And, and so the care with which I cook it, with which I make sure I use every little part of it, is really different and is a, is a kind of devotion to that life that... Um, mm -hmm 
that that I'm getting this meat from. So, so I was really primed with this pork chop to pay attention, and um, <laughs> I guess you were. It shows. It's interesting. I just took delivery on a, on a whole pig. I have a bunch of oh. freezers. I have a, a very old fashioned mentality about food, so I. I that's also great. use every scrap. I know how to use oh, every scrap, great. but maybe that's why I adore that poem so much in your in your recent book Indigo. But you have you have two odes actually in the book that I loved the um, the the, the poor ode to a pork chop and an ode to fat. And let's talk about the choices that go into writing topics: a pork chop and a deep appreciation of another person's body fat. Maybe. Those are unexpected choices in a poetry collection. <laughs> if you're a classicist, I mean, who's to say? But how do you decide what goes in and what goes where? Because they weren't next yes. to each other, those two odes. Like, you didn't and, go, here are my odes. <laughs> right. Spread them out. Right. And exactly. I loved them both. But they both were appreciative of the topic. So how do you make the decision about what goes in? I love writing odes to... Um, Things that are not usually praised. And um, I think, yes, Annie Dillard said, um, I'm going to not get the exact words here, but she said that everyone loves the same things best. And so the writer's job is to find the thing that only you love. And I Mm. think with the pork chop and fat that I came close to that. And I... I, I, and of co- and of course, you know, the great ode writer Neruda also wrote to very homely things, like his marvelous ode to his socks, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. so we we do have a um, and Sharon Olds' new book, newish book, o- odes, has marvelous, marvelous odes to all kinds of things that have never been uh, praised before in a poem. I'm so glad to see both of those there. It gave me hope for all of us that there was an ode to a pork chop, an ode to fat. It And it gives me, poetry always has given me hope. I, I began my own education as a writer with poetry, reading it, writing it. And I credit it with giving me the ability to research all day long, um, whatever I need to know. Because if I'm in a, and if I'm in a particularly I don't know how to characterize this particular mood, but I, I might reply when asked what I do for a living that I spend the whole day looking for another word for blue. But you know, <laughs> yes. and I don't think of it as an in, yeah. It's not an indulgence. It's a work mm-mm, ethic, mm-mm. and um, mm-hmm. I can be kind of pissy about it. You know, with, with in laws and stuff when they kind of wish I had a real job. And uh, but but what do you think living hard by each word this way does for us as and I mean literally does for us as people as humans as thinkers. This each word each I mean I, I think I'm remembering it correctly that Emily Dickinson used to cut words out of magazines and put them next to each other just to see how they looked. And oh, I, I that. love that. Cool. I love that. That's beautiful. So what does that do for us as humans to to live so hard by each individual word, do you think? Well, I think it allows us to say the unsayable. A a poem Mm. can't be paraphrased. It is what it is. I mean, you can say to somebody, you know, oh, you should read this poem about the pork chop. Um, But I can't paraphrase the poem because the words are exactly as close as we can get them 
to saying something that you really can't just say right out. If you could, if you could say it another way, then you would. Uh, this is the the <laughs> only way to say it <laughs> and to say the thing really you're saying. <laughs> if I could say it another way, I would. <laughs> It's just really a nice response to so many things. <laughs> I've been really, really, yeah. I've been reading this wonderful, wonderful book by uh, Verlin Klinkenborg called "Several Short Sentences oh, I About love him. Writing." Do you love him too? I well, he's yes. new to me. Oh, and so I've, I've, I'm just so excited about him. And you know, he talks about how children understand that the exact word is the the only way and that you if you change the word order or if you like if you're reading a book to a five-year-old he talks about mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. He, he says you know the I'll read to you. The meaning of the sentence is never a substitute for the sentence itself, not to a six-year-old. This is still an excellent way to read. And you know if you're reading to a six-year-old and you flub a word and they know that book well, they'll correct you. They'll say, no, no. It goes like this. Absolutely. Uh, And so everything, the exact word, the meaning of the word, the sound of the word, uh, the great poet Frank Gaspar calls it the mouthfeel of the word, um, mm. the connotations of the word. You know, every word uh, brings with it a, a huge trail of the way that that word's been used uh, through the years, sometimes through the centuries, what its different shades of meaning are. And so that's what we're doing is we're, we're trying to say something which is too complex to say uh, in a soundbite or a cliche, mm-hmm. uh, which would only be you know reducing it. We're trying to say something without reducing it and to allow it its full complexity. And to do that, yes, we have to look for the exact word to get at that blue. I, I've always wondered if we looked at a, at a poet in a functional MRI, you know, one that can actually watch brain process, the, it, it, if we would see a difference in the work day than, say, if we watched the brain of a fiction writer or reporter pounding out a piece, because this process of annotation is similar, you know, that trust we have to have of what's in there, mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. we've ever eaten, thought, felt, you know, considered, every movie we've ever seen, it's all in there and then it'll, it'll come up for us. Um, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for that process. But I think with, with poetry, the precision, the one word, you know, that, that going into that sort of Walmart-sized subconscious of ours and getting that different word for blue has a brain process that I would just love to see in um, in, a, in a scientific way. Do you actually? Have a I've great read trust? about that a yeah. bit. Yeah, have they've you? done they. Yeah, they uh, uh, around metaphor, which is is kind of my the, the thing that I'm maybe the most uh, uh, the the aspect of the craft that I feel closest to, and they've mm-hmm. done brain imaging of people. Um, reading metaphors and when you read a metaphor a part of your brain lights up that does not light up when you read um 
a description of that thing without metaphor. So your 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 brain, when you read a metaphor, is doing the simulation uh, very quickly. So if you say, um, you know, my love is like a red, red rose, your brain is in a microsecond, without you being conscious of it, holding up love and your love, you know, the beloved and the rose and going quickly back and forth, back and forth between them to do this, um, authenticate it's your brain is trying to Mm -hmm. authenticate it. And when you read a metaphor Mm -hmm. that doesn't work, uh, your brain rejects it and says, no, it's not like that. <laughs> but if it really works, it's it's authenticating it, and you actually have an experience. Whereas if you just read um, something that talks about it without using metaphorical language, then the brain, that part of the brain doesn't light up. Well, we get I'm just the information. very glad to know that. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, yeah. I love that. I will look yeah. it up the, and the functional MRI and the metaphor because that that feels right cellularly. It, I I completely get that because yeah. the joy we experience in those kind of overlays, those intellectual overlays, when when somebody metaphors something for us, is just a singular joy. There's no other feeling like it when we get it. And yes. I enjoy that so much. There's so many aspects of writing I love. I love reporting. I, I love research. I love I too love metaphor. I think it's it it does feel intellectually gorgeous. Um and I and I feel a lot of freedom and remarkable excess yes. when I'm writing my first draft. Yes. I call my first drafts my vomit draft. It's very much like <laughs> dumping a 10 million piece jug jigsaw puzzle on the floor. And then what I love best, though, um, is rewrite because it's the tidying up. It's the, yeah. and I and I think I and I do I've, I I don't write poetry anymore, but I did train myself on it um, for years. But I might have this mistaken opinion that rewrite for a poet is is smaller and different. And and so set me straight. What you get a first draft or something? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that a tiny bit. But I also remembered. I just want to come back just to tell you that that the part of the brain is the part that senses texture through touch. And mm. so it's it's very physical. It's the parietal yes. operculum. It is. <laughs> Which I love to say. Isn't that a wonderful? I, I can you, tell that. I can tell that you operculum. did. And I says, I'll expect to see that in a poem any moment. It's that. I hope so. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Oh, that would be phrase. so much fun. I'm going to try. Sure. So revision yeah. for for me, different poems go through a different process. Sometimes, um, sometimes I do have that jigsaw puzzle dumped out and uh, everything is there and I just have to find it, uh, you know, wade, wade through the waters and, and find it. Uh, sometimes the revision process is digging deeper into the con- content of what I'm uh, trying to grapple with because I haven't yet made the crucial discovery as to you know what it what it is that I can uh, find out that I, I mean in a poem you're always wanting to find out something that you didn't know before you wrote it. If you just write down mm. what you already knew, 
then you're still on the diving board. You haven't jumped off yet. So that's a high bar. It's a high dive, high bar. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I'll write something and I'll go, well, okay, so what? Um, Mark Doty has a wonderful poem called Little Rabbit Dead in the Grass. And in the middle of it, he says, and now we come to the so of the poem. And uh, mm. there's a question mark after so, you know, so it's like, so what? So sometimes in the revision, it, it is not uh, an editing process or uh, a smoothing process or, you know, trying to make sure that the rhythm in a line is just right. Sometimes it's much, much messier and deeper and um, richer than that, looking for, you know, what is it that I haven't yet uh, understood? And... Um, and then some of the revision goes on and on and on for me in, in this recent book that, that I published that just came out, Indigo. There's a couple of poems where right at the 11th hour, I lopped off three quarters of the poem and mm. realized that it just wasn't necessary. And yeah. so that that process does go on and on and on with some poems. And some poems, there's one poem in here, <laughs> ironically, it's, it's titled Failure, but it took me 12 years to write it, and, and not continuously, thank goodness, but every few years I would take it out. I continued to be interested in the event that uh, sparked the poem, and I'd, I'd give it another really good try and work on it for a few months and then just put it aside because I, I still didn't get it. And then finally, mm -hmm. finally, finally, uh, 12 years after the original first draft, I found a way into that poem. And uh, I found both a way into it and a way out of it, the beginning and the end, that uh, were more satisfying. Oh, that's so generous of you. That's so lovely of you to tell tell us. I have so many stories that I I haven't figured out the so of it yet. I haven't figured out <laughs> yeah. what the piece is about. I have the the illustration, but I don't know what I'm arguing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a beautiful word, illustration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love I, that. I believe that uh, pieces are about something, and that you're you can be the illustration of it when you write memoir. Because I'm pr predominantly a memoir writer and a memoir teacher, and getting people off of thinking it's about them is the biggest assignment, but mm -hmm. I have lots of scenes that I just haven't used mm -hmm. yet because I don't know what they're about. I just mm -hmm. know what happened. And that's a yeah. big difference. Right. So right. you have a website. I have to I tell do. you, I don't think I've ever been so surprised by anything when researching a writer because I a poet with a website <laughs> is just a phrase that does not usually happen. Um, a poet of a certain age with a website. I mean, I've got friends who are well-published poets who don't have uh, cell phones and let alone websites. So <laughs> as we start to wrap this up, let's just talk a little bit about being online. Why are you there? I mean, thank you for being there. I am a huge believer in it, of, of the need to be available. But you have a real website. We can watch you read. We have access to all your books. Talk to me about how that happened, please. Well, um, I, I am not an academic. I do now teach in a low-residency MFA program in Oregon, Pacific University, and I love teaching there. I've been teaching there for the last 
dozen years. But for most uh, of my writing life, I've been teaching independently. And when I started, now we're going back to like 1970, uh, that meant, you know, this was before, uh, way before computers. Um, And so that meant writing by hand a flyer and taking it around town and tacking it up so that I could yeah. teach out of my living room. And sure. so the the need to connect with my community and with other communities has always been there for me. So that that feels very natural to me. Uh, I, I, I did feel some reluctance every step of the way moving into more and more and more technology. But the great thing is that there are people who help you with that. And so I -hmm. have a a beloved assistant who uh, I couldn't do what I do without. And um, our mutual friend and writer, Roxanne McDonald, helps me online. Uh, So I don't actually do these things myself, but I... You know, I participate in having them happen. Glad to see it. Well, yours is ellenbass.com, and I and I recommend everybody go there and listen to you read and to see the many, many books you've written. It's it's just a joy to talk to you. I, I hate to let you go, but I've got to let you go. But thank you, Ellen. This is just a terrific conversation. I know we have to end, but I feel the same way. We could we could talk for the next hour or two happily, couldn't we? We absolutely could, and I'd love to have you come back and talk about your nonfiction writing. So let's make a date to do that, if you Sounds will, Sounds good. Sounds good. Great. Thank you. And the writer is Ellen Bass. Her book, Indigo, is just out from Copper Canyon Press. Get her books wherever books are sold. Watch her on YouTube. You can listen to her work on her website, ellenbass.com. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. Bye.